Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 will be our sermon text for this morning. If you haven't been here, we've been working through the book of Genesis for a number of uh, months now, and we come to Genesis 11, and um, before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much uh, that you do hear us, and we can cry out to you for mercy and grace, and you, uh, you have given that to us in your Son, and you continue to give it to us by the work of your Spirit in our midst. And Father, we pray that you would be with us now, that you would pour out your Spirit on us now, that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend and hearts to receive everything that you have for us in your Word. And we pray that you would uh, do that so that Christ would be glorified in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In many movies, there are, are scenes, uh, moments, uh, seemingly sacred moments that, that give you a sense of transcendence. And let me explain what I mean. I'm not talking about uh, philosophical movies or heady movies or religious movies or anything like that necessarily. Uh, and I'm, I'm not talking, of course, about actual transcendence, but this, this sense, this feeling deep inside that there is something more, that there's something amazing out there. Um, there is this moment in Avengers Endgame, uh, which I decided not to share in detail, not because I was worried about spoilers. You should have seen it by now. Uh, but uh, because I knew I would start weeping and I didn't want to make a show. Uh, but it's this, there's this moment where one of the characters in the movie, and I'll just say he, quote, reaches his fullest potential, and everyone in the theater when we watch it literally cheered out loud. It was awesome. Uh, there's a moment in the movie Children of Men, which is a, a dark, kind of violent, dystopian story based off a British anti-abortion novel, and there's this moment in the middle of a, a literal battle scene where a baby begins to cry. And for a moment, everyone stops. Everyone is in awe. Everyone has a spark of hope for a moment. 
And there are moments in movies where there is this sense of having overcome, of rising above the ordinary, of transcendent glory. Uh, These moments where you know that something special is happening here, something unique. And yet it's just a movie. Uh, The same can be true for music, right? Uh, The the, the right song can give you a a kind of feeling of transcendence, of of rising above the ordinary. If only for a moment you have this kind of inner exaltation while listening to certain songs. Good movie makers, good musicians, right? They they know how to, to, to bring you to that point. As human beings, I think uh, we were made for a relationship with the triune God. And we are searching, always searching for transcendence. Uh, some people stop with movies and music. Uh, C.S. Lewis would say that they are like children playing in a mud puddle, not knowing what it's like to take a trip to the beach. We are looking for something that will enable us to rise above the ordinary. Uh, We're looking for something that will enable us to to reach the stars, as we say, or to rise up or to overcome or to feel like we're not stuck in the mundane anymore. And that may be as simple as we're, we're seeking to overcome boredom or it may be seeking to get out from under oppression or violence, but there is something inside each of us searching for transcendence. Well, this morning we're going to take a a first pass on the Tower of Babel story. I say first pass because we're going to come back to it again next week because there's just so much to chew on and think about in this story. Uh, But today we're going to talk about three things, Uh, the wisdom of this age, the folly of the cross, and the logic of grace. First, the wisdom of this age. Uh, Many of you probably know the Tower of Babel story. Uh, Early peoples decide to build a tower which reaches into the heavens, and God decides for some reason to be discussed that this is a bad idea, and he comes down from heaven, confuses their language, and scatters them over the face of all the earth. Uh, Let me say one thing by way of preface. You know, last week we read the genealogy of Genesis 10, and in that genealogy it said that people spread out each with their own language. And I had a professor in art school who said, See, the Bible is full of contradictions. Chapter 10 says, people spread out each with their own language. Chapter 11 begins, now the whole earth had one language, and people are doing their best not to spread out. Of course, just a little bit of careful reading and thoughtful reflection answers that objection. Uh, First, you might ask, and it's a legitimate question, right? Is the writer of Genesis really so oblivious that he would leave such a seemingly obvious contradiction right there in the open for all to see. I mean, how dumb do we think he is? Second, notice back in chapter 10, uh, verse 25, two sons are born to Eber, one of whom is named Peleg, which means division, because, we are told, in his days the earth was divided. See, what we're being told, what what is being previewed there in Genesis chapter 10, is that the linguistic division of Babel chronologically happened in chapter 10, verse 25, in the middle of the genealogies. And what we have here is kind of an overview in chapter 10 and then a deep dive into a detail in chapter 11. Uh, This is nothing different different than what you might find in a TV show uh, when you have one scene with one set of characters in one place and then all of a sudden it says, meanwhile, and you go over to another simultaneous scene with another set of characters in another place. 
And so you have this kind of overview, this one scene where you get this overview of all that's going on, and then you get the next scene, which is a, a, a cut back to one moment within that genealogy. It's similar, by the way, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? Chapter 1 is the overview. Chapter 2 dives into one moment and gives you some details. You get the panoramic scene and then the close-up. Well, what's happening in these details? Uh, verses 1 and 2 set the stage. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. First, it begins with actually what chapter 10 emphasized, which is the unity of all people, the whole earth. Uh, this included a, a kind of cultural unity. They all had one language. And here, they, uh, some at least, were seeking a political unity in building one great city. The second, they migrate. Uh, it's actually a little unclear which way they migrate. Uh, you look at various translations, you will see different ways of translating those words, whether it is from the east or east word. And of course, those two things are opposites. But the word could be translated either way. So uh, I, I think it's likely east word, given where the ark likely landed and where they are now settling. They settle in the land of Shinar. That too was mentioned, by the way, back in chapter 10. Maybe you remember the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was in the land of Shinar. In fact, he perhaps even founded Babel the way it's worded. And so again, we have this clear indication in this text that this story happened actually in the middle of the genealogies of Genesis 10. And so the stage is set. They've migrated, they've settled in this plain, and the stage is set for the real action of the story. And the people say to one another this in verse 3, they say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for, porter, for mortar. Uh, first, we have uh, mentioned their technology, right? Making and baking bricks. Uh, the writer explains this to his Hebrew audience who probably had different building techniques. Uh, he says this people used brick in the place of stone and bitumen for mortar. The question, of course, is what do they do with that technology? And that's what we find in the next verse. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Their plan is to build a city with a tower. And yet there are really three goals in this, if you look carefully. They, they want safety, they want significance, and they want some sense of transcendence. Uh, first, safety, right? Cities in the ancient world were not first for living in, but for safety. Uh, a city implied a wall, and a wall was built for protection. We already saw in chapter 10 that violence had come back into the world after the flood, and so clearly this group of people is seeking to take measures to protect itself, to build a walled city, to build a city and keep the danger out there. Second, they're, they're, they're seeking significance, by building a city with a great tower, everyone will be impressed. Uh, we tend to be impressed with great architectural feats, don't we? I mean, have you ever seen pictures of the tallest building in the world in Dubai? It really is impressive. Third, they're seeking transcendence. They want to build a tower with its top in the heavens. And what they are likely building was a, an ancient ziggurat, uh, what we might think of as a kind of stepped pyramid, except pyramids and ziggurats are built for very different reasons. It was a kind of man-made mountain. 
At the top of the ziggurat was a temple, and the worshiper ascending the steps of the ziggurat was ascending into heaven up to the temple to meet with God. And so here's what we see here, right? Human, humanity seeks to use their strength, their technology, their craft, their art, even their present cultural and political unity to secure their safety and significance and to regain a sense of transcendence that they lost in the fall. So what's wrong? Uh, well, first, we should actually note what's not wrong. Uh, remember, first, that there's nothing wrong with technology in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with building cities and building walls and even building towers in and of itself. Jerusalem is a city celebrated throughout Scripture. The book of Nehemiah is all about building city walls. There's nothing wrong with technology or cities. And notice, second, that the things that they long for are good. Uh, they want to be safe. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe. Uh, they want to be known. There's actually nothing wrong with wanting to be known. A good name is better than silver and gold, Scripture tells us. We all want to be known, on some level at least, to have people see us and love us for who we are. They want to regain something of what was lost in the fall. They want, they want a connection with God, their creator, which, of course, is ultimately God's plan as well, after all. So then what is wrong? What's the problem with what they're doing? Well, first, what they are doing is in direct opposition to God's command. That, that, that's uh, the most obvious point, right? God said, go fill the earth. They say, let's do this so that we are not dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Remember what, what, that, that God wants to fill the earth with his image. That is a theme that seems to be in almost every chapter in the book of Genesis so far. God has a desire to fill the earth with his image. They, on the other hand, want to congregate. They want to, they want to hold up in their city in direct contradiction to the plan of God. They are afraid to fulfill his plan, to move out into the earth, and so they hold back. And second, while there is nothing wrong with being known in and of itself, this goes a step further, doesn't it? They want to make a name for themselves. They are not living for God's glory, but for their own. Like Adam and Eve before them, they, they were hearing the words of Satan, you shall be as gods. They are taking the divine prerogative for themselves. They want glory. A third, they think that they can restore themselves to God. Uh, you know, the imagery of meeting with God on a mountain is used throughout the Bible. Uh, just think of Moses on Mount Sinai or Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The difference here is this, rather than coming down to meet with his people, people are seeking by their technology and craft to create their own literal stairway to heaven. Babel, to the Babylonians, means gate of God. Well, these first Babylonians, this people of Nimrod, were seeking to storm heaven, to transcend the ordinary, to recover Eden by their own art and strength. And some of the, the basic questions for us are, are pretty clear, aren't they? Well, well, where is fear keeping me from obedience? Where has my name become more important than God's name? Where am I seeking for transcendence? Am I seeking it through the things that I can do, the things that I can accomplish? Is there anything in my life that indicates I think I have a right or ability to restore myself to God? Do I think that God will accept me into his presence because of my abilities, my activities, Am I trying to build some kind of metaphorical stairway to heaven? Am I seeking transcendence in the stuff of this age, whether bricks and buildings or the ever-changing technological landscape of our day? 
There, there is this interesting thought, at least in sci-fi, that technology will enable us to transcend the constraints of this life. Uh, in the books Ready Player One and Ready Player Two, transcendence is sought in, in virt- a virtual reality fantasy world. They're seeking to transcend the boring, mundane, difficult, ordinary, everyday life. Where are you seeking transcendence? What do you look to, to to bring you above and beyond the mundane of this present age? Can I say something that, that should be obvious? Nothing in the present age can enable you to transcend the present age. You, you can't build a ladder into heaven because heaven is not of this world. Well, how, how does God respond to all this? How does he respond to their pride and disobedience? Well, at, at this point, I want to mention that this little story Uh, All of the the commentators will tell you is a masterpiece of Hebrew literature. Uh, Word plays and alliteration abound. And one of those alliterative word plays is found in the relationship between the word for let us make bricks and the word for let us confuse. Uh, My Hebrew is not that great, but the one is nilbana and the other is nabalah. And so you can hear the similarity. Uh, Let us build, rearranged and scrambled, becomes let us confuse. And those consonants are repeated again and again in various ways throughout the story. There is this audible echo uh, throughout the verses. But what's really interesting is that those words also echo the Hebrew word for wicked folly, nebalah. And so nilbanah, let us bake, becomes nabalah, let us confuse, because the nilbanah was nebalah, folly. God's judgment on the proud, tower-building quest for technological transcendence is folly, wicked folly. And the text begins to point this out in verse 5. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the tower and the city. They sought to build a tower uh, that reached into the heavens, but they didn't quite make it. This is kind of the narratival equivalent of Psalm 2's He who sits in the heavens laughs. The picture is meant to be humorous, a mockery of Babel's pride. It is as if the writer said, and God in heaven got out his telescope, and he still couldn't see the great tower that they had built. And so he he took the elevator all the way down to check out this thing that they had done. The greatest works of men are infinitesimal. I knew I wouldn't be able to pronounce that word. Are tiny to God. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and he has to stoop down to see our puny tower. Now, to some, that might be insulting, but Nebuchadnezzar, a much later king of Babylon, realized this himself over time. You may remember in the book of Daniel, at first, Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel chapter 4, at one point, King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? An echo of the words of Babel's tower builders, if ever there were. But after God humbled him later in the story, Nebuchadnezzar says this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, 
and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, Nebuchadnezzar realized how small he was and how big God is. All of that is implied in the words of verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Then you have verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. See, God recognizes here that, that a part of their strength is their unity. But not all unity is good unity. Unity is not an absolute good. Unity in rebellion, unity in wickedness, means greater wickedness and greater rebellion. And so, in verses 7 and 8, God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Uh, Notice here what what, uh, one theologian, G.K. Beale, calls retributive irony. Uh, They use their speech to rebel, and so God confuses their speech, right? In verse 3, they say to one another, come. In verse 7, they can't understand one another's speech. They are afraid of being dispersed, so they disobey. And the result is the exact opposite of their intention. They are dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They want to make a name for themselves. They they get a name in the end, Babel, which in Hebrew means confusion. These fools sought to storm the heavens to make a name for themselves and so protect themselves from God's purposes. God reduces them to babbling fools and spreads them over the face of the earth, fulfilling his purposes for them. This is the the wisdom of this age and its end. We think we can use our strengths, our technology, our political unity to secure safety and significance in the present age and somehow transcend the mundane. But it won't work. Safety and significance are found only in God and his purposes. The wisdom of this age is folly with God. Which brings us to our second point, the folly of the cross. Do you think the cross is foolish? This is what Paul says. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. God becomes a man. Life is found through death. A king defeats his enemies by giving himself into their hands. Jesus' glory is his being stripped and mocked. Jesus' authority is exercised in being arrested and falsely accused condemned by the authorities of this age. Jesus' strength is seen in his being beaten, bruised, and nailed to a tree. By every measurement, by every analytic tool of this age, it doesn't make sense. Again, Paul calls the message of the gospel the folly of what we preach and the foolishness of God. Later he says, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. It's not that the cross is absolute folly, but it is foolish according to the thinking of this age. 
Think again of the tower builders, right? They, they use their strength, their technology, their, their unity to seek to gain for themselves safety and significance by building a tower that reached into the heavens. They sought transcendence by going up. That is how you find transcendence, after all, right? That is how you gain safety, by exercising your strength. You impress people with your skills. You, you ward off threats by flexing your muscles. You overcome the mundane by achieving more, becoming more, being more, proving yourself, proving your worth, being a cut above the rest. You transcend by ascending, by going up whether that is ascending the corporate ladder or getting on top of the political machine or becoming top dog in your little circle of friends, right? We think you transcend by ascending. But what does Jesus do? He descends. He comes down. He goes low. God becomes a man. Power is housed in frailty. Glory is hidden in nakedness. The prince dresses like the pauper. Why? Why does Jesus go low? Because no human power, not learning, not beauty, not politics, not strength, not art, not creativity, not charisma, not skill, no human power can do what needed to be done. So Jesus didn't take on human power. He took on weakness so that God's power would be made known. Rather than using strength to secure safety and status, Jesus became weak and vulnerable and rejected. He went to the cross. He bore our sin. And, and then God acted. Jesus went low and God raised him up. Jesus became weak and he gained resurrection power. Jesus became vulnerable. He gained resurrection victory. Jesus was rejected and he was raised up in glory. You want to transcend well, the second person of the Trinity descended. He condescended to be with us. He became a man. And so God raised him up from the dead, and he ascended to the Father's right hand, where he now sits in glory as king, until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. See, the folly of the cross is you must go low to get high. It's the folly of the cross, and it is the logic of grace. So we've talked about the wisdom of this age and the folly of the cross. Third, the logic of grace. Uh, some of you have heard me call this the counterintuitive logic of grace. Uh, the intuition of this age says to go up, you go up. You want glory, seek glory. You want safety, seek safety. You want to be first, strive for first. You want to be great, strive for greatness. You want to get ahead, flex your muscles. The counterintuitive logic of grace, though, says the first will be last. To be great, you must become a servant. That power comes through weakness and wisdom through folly. We can break that down just a little. First, strength is found in weakness. The people of Babel sought to flex their muscles, use their technology, leverage their cultural and political unity, and make a name for themselves. Jesus says his power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says when he is weak, then he is strong. Well, why is that? Why would that be? Because weakness is the pathway to dependence upon the power of God. You see, it's not that weakness itself is a virtue. But weakness is the pathway to dependence. If we were to flesh out Paul's statement, when I am weak, then I am strong, we could say this. When I am weak, I realize I can't do life on my own, and I cry out to God in my weakness, and his strength is perfected in and through me. And the more quickly we come to an end of ourselves, the more quickly we can cry out to God and find his power at work in and through us. 
This doesn't mean, by the way, denying your strengths. It doesn't mean pretending you are weak when you are actually strong. Because guess what, right? Though you have maybe many God-given strengths, you have a lot of weaknesses too. And even your strengths are nothing apart from the blessing of God because Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It is when we recognize our limitations that God begins to transcend them in our lives by his power at work in our weakness. Second, safety is found in vulnerability. Uh, The people of Babel were afraid. They were afraid of pursuing God's purpose for them, filling the earth, and so they huddled. But guess what was truly unsafe? Disobedience to their father. It doesn't matter how vulnerable you may become. There is no safer, there is no one safer than the one walking in obedience to the father. That doesn't mean you go out and do specifically unsafe things because you think you are invincible. It means that you do what God is calling you to do because being in the will of God is the safest place to be. By that, of course, I mean first and foremost, living in obedience to the Scriptures, doing all that Christ has commanded as he taught in the Great Commission. That's safe, resting in your Father's hands and obeying his will. We see that nowhere clearer, of course, than in the cross, where Jesus obeyed the Father to the point of death and then was raised to life again on the, uh, on the third day. Obedience wasn't comfortable, but it was safe. And it was the only way for resurrection to come. Third, significance is found in service. The people of Babel wanted to build a name for themselves. They didn't want to serve God by serving neighbor. They didn't want to love God by loving neighbor. Every every day, uh, students are asked, what do you want to do when you graduate? And it's a fair question as a conversation starter, but it's the wrong question for guiding you through life. You, You won't find significance or satisfaction by pursuing what you want to do because you want to do it. You won't find significance or satisfaction by pursuing significance and satisfaction. Why? Because we were made for service. Uh, This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The life calling of our Lord Jesus was to be a servant. If you aspire to anything more, you aspire to less. Remember, he has the name that is above every name. Glory comes through service. Glory comes through self-sacrifice. Glory comes when I am not thinking about my glory, but thinking about the glory of God and the good of my neighbor. Significance is found in service. That's going to look differently for for everyone in the room, right? There's no cookie-cutter mold for service. Uh, I don't know how you are called to serve those around you, but I know you are called to serve. Some serve by being missionaries, and some serve by being math teachers. Some serve by taking out the trash. Some serve by painting portraits. Some serve by studying science. Some serve by bandaging broken bones. Some serve by fixing leaky faucets, right? Some serve up front, some serve behind the scenes. Some serve in mundane ways every day over the long haul. Some serve by giving their life in a moment of self-sacrifice. But we are all called to serve, to give of ourselves for the good of others and the glory of God. Strength is found in weakness. Safety is found in, in vulnerability as we live in obedience to our Father. And significance is found in service. Finally, transcendence 
Transcendence is found only in union with the one who first descended and gave himself up on the cross and then was raised and ascended into heaven. The only one who has opened the way into heaven is the one who has ascended into heaven in order to open that way, right? Jesus is Jacob's ladder, right? He is the gate of God. He is the stairway to heaven. You want to know something that transcends the mundane of this age? First, look to Jesus in faith. Trust in his work on your behalf. Worship him as the ascended king. And then cry out to Jesus to work his power in and through you by his spirit. Step out in obedience and serve in the strength that he supplies you will be a part of something so much bigger than you can imagine, something that transcends the schemes and programs of this age. You try to make it about you, your, your tower will fall. Humble yourself under God's hand, and he will exalt you on the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we, don't, we don't want it uh, to be about us. We want it to be about you and your glory and the glory of your Son. We want to see him exalted and him praised and him known and him loved and him worshipped and him served. And we pray that you would help us to be a part of that, of your purposes in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.